and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. First link comes to us from The Guardian, and they are proud to announce that no-kill lab-grown meat is to go on sale for the first time. <gasps> like Ooh. totally fake, we made it in a test tube and you're going to eat it kind of meat. I mean, when you say fake, well, this is yeah. kind of where it gets a little dicey, right? So Singapore, and this is specific to Singapore, they've just approved chicken cells grown in bioreactors, and it's being seen as a landmark moment across the industry. So it's not like the Impossible or Beyond Burger where it's made with pea protein and whatever else. This is literal chicken meat tissue, but it was grown in bioreactor labs. So it never had a brain. It never just had a brain. <laughs> That's right. It requires no slaughtering of an animal, and it has just been approved for sale by a regulatory authority for the very first time. It's a U.S. company called Eat Just. And they're quote unquote chicken bites. So I guess they're kind of like chicken nuggets. They've passed a safety review by the Singapore Food Agency and the approval could open the door to a future when all meat is produced without the killing of livestock, as the company noted. And this is only one of dozens of firms that are developing cultivated chicken, beef and pork. So right now, these stats are wild. About 130 million chickens are slaughtered every day for meat. Four million pigs are slaughtered every day for meat. And this one just blew my mind. By weight, 60% of the mammals on Earth are livestock, 36% are humans, and only 4% are wild. That's kind of wow. like 36% are livestock, too. I mean, people aren't really that special, are we? <laughs> <laughs> no, but are we actually growing each other for consumption by each other? I think mm. that would be the critical <laughs> definitional <laughs> distinction between livestock and humans. Right. <laughs> so the cells are grown in a 1,200-liter bioreactor and then are combined with some other plant-based ingredients. The initial availability would be limited. Of course, the product is going to be significantly more expensive than conventional chicken Mm. because we still have to wait for production to scale up. But ultimately, over time, with scale, this should be cheaper. The way this works is that the cells used to start the process came from a cell bank and did not require the slaughter of a chicken because cells can be taken from biopsies of live animals. The nutrients supplied to the growing cells were all from plants, and the growth medium for the Singapore production line includes fetal bovine serum, which is extracted from fetal blood, (laughs) but the article (laughs) notes this is, quote, largely removed before consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Largely. (laughs) I mean, you know, we're still early days in this uh, technology, (laughs) but they do say a plant-based serum would be used in the next production line. It just wasn't available when the Singapore approval process began two years ago. So this has been in the pipeline for a while, right? So the serum is like, it's not an ingredient. It's used to feed the cells as they grow. It's a growth medium. So if you think about it, what does fetal serum do? It is a growth medium for fetuses in the womb, right? So I guess they're kind of trying to replicate this in a, I'm envisioning like the matrix battery situation where we've got people that are in this growth or at least, you know, maintenance type of medium. Yeah, because I'm like, I'm very concerned when they say plant-based because immediately my brain says soy. 
Like, that's what they always mm-hmm. mean, but they never want to say soy. But then you got to start thinking like, OK, well, if people have allergies to soy, then yeah. if they are consuming any of that medium, then obviously this isn't the, the panacea that they hope it is. But if it's just this is what was used to feed it, just like whatever the chicken ate before it became a full size chicken, <laughs> then right. you're not actually consuming any of the thing that fed it to grow. And yeah. so it's not a problem. Yeah. Obviously, if you've got some allergies, this is something that you're going to really want to look at the not only ingredient list, but as much information that can be possibly made. I also assume that once this is kind of out in the markets and not just a Singapore restaurant, right. this would be something where they would say, hey, if you've got XYZ allergies, this is not going to work for you. But mm-hmm. hugely important first step. I mean, rich nations eat more meat than is healthy for them or the planet. Cutting meat consumption is vital in tackling the climate crisis. And some scientists even say that this is the best single environmental action a person can take. Mm -hmm. The companies that are developing lab-grown meat are hoping that this product is most likely to wean committed meat eaters off of traditional sources. Plus, meat cultivated in bioreactors avoids the issue of bacterial contamination from animal waste and the overuse of antibiotics and hormones in animals. All right. I'm cautiously optimistic. Because I, 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 I freely admit, number one, I'm one of those people who's going to be really hesitant to give up meat. And number two, I am very suspicious of like genetically modified stuff. And sure. so my deep abiding question would be, is it really meat? Like, are they saying it's meat, but it's actually like some sort of meat conglomerate that they've put other stuff into? <laughs> right. or, it, or is it just really meat that they grew in a Petri dish and it's fine? And you can just eat it. And I, you know, I could be one over. I'm going to I'm going to wait and let some other people eat it first. But this particular company is not the only one doing it. There are other companies called Memphis Meats, Mosa Meat. Of course, it's interesting to note that Memphis Meats has Tyson and Cargill, two of the world's biggest conventional meat companies. They now have a stake. And so they kind of see where things are going, if only to diversify, if not like a full transition of their business model. But a recent report from the global consultancy A.T. Kearney predicted that most meat in 2040 would not come from dead animals. Wow. Right? That's a fast turnaround. It is a fast turnaround. And this is a global consultancy. You know, they may have a stake, no pun intended, (laughs) in one of these companies or anything like it, but that's 20 years from now. And I'm okay with that. Wait, did you say 2024 or 2044? 2040, which is 20 years from now. (laughs) I thought you said 2024 and I was like, that's four Uh, There's no way. But if the consulting company says so. (laughs) (laughs) I think 20 years is still ambitious. Sure. In a way that, you know, some countries are starting to commit to carbon free or, you know, all electric by 2035. So hopefully Mm -hmm. by the time we are drawing on Social Security, should it still even (laughs) exist by then, we may have some really interesting developments. That's some optimism all around. Social Security (laughs) and meat that doesn't kill animals. (laughs) Just the musings of a commie liberal pinko looking forward to the future. What can I say? (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. So, Angie, you and I were both into the same thing here. Uh, This article comes from The Guardian as well, and it's titled, I tried the world's first no-kill lab-grown chicken burger. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I think this one is a little bit on the other side. It's more of like the human interest of story of what it's actually like to have one of these burgers. Yeah. Uh, The journalist who wrote this actually went into the first (gasps) restaurant in Israel, I believe in Tel Aviv, and checked it out. Which is what matters more to me, frankly. I don't want a press release. I want to know what it tastes like. Exactly. Exactly. So 
First thing you should know is that the head chef has a PhD in genetics mm. because he's not just in charge of frying your chicken burger. He actually created the meat himself. Oh, wow. Uh, his name is Tomer Halavi, and he says that this burger takes something between two to three days to grow as he's chopping red onions, <gasps> iceberg lettuce, and avocado, and he proceeds to batter what appears to be a strip of raw chicken before dipping it in breadcrumbs. And one study suggested that this type of meat could potentially be produced with 96% lower greenhouse gas emissions and 99% less land. Although some animal rights activists argue that it perpetuates an unhealthy obsession with eating animals. Hey, look, you got to take your steps where you can get them. Don't shoot yeah. this in the foot. <laughs> so at the chicken, bottles of red wine line the walls. There's black stools surrounding circular tables. And the entire back wall is made of glass. And behind it is the production facility where lab-coated scientists <gasps> wander around between large metal vats. It's so a petri cool. dish to table service. That's a fantastic and atmosphere. I'd 100% yeah. eat in that restaurant just from Just the, uh, to see yeah. it, right? It's yeah. kind of like going to an Asian restaurant and seeing all the fish in tanks, but with like a far less depressing <laughs> kind of feel to it. Like instead yeah. of like, oh, you're going to die so I can eat food. It's going to be like, yes, science. Go, go, go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the breaded patty is deep fried in oil before being placed on a sweet brioche bun flavored by wasabi and chili mayo with a side of sweet potato chips. Wow. And similar to many chicken burgers, it breaks and flakes when pulled apart and is extremely tender. The interesting thing is that, and this goes a little bit to Jen's concerns, unlike reared poultry, this meat is made bespoke. It can be significantly altered in the process, depending on how it is encouraged to grow and what is used in the feed, which is the water, sugar, amino acid, protein, and vitamin bath that the meat grows in. Halavi says that this can lead to surprising possibilities. Like, they can actually create something that's between a breast and a thigh, which <gasps> I'm trying to imagine right now. Hmm. And so instead of white meat or dark meat, you get gray meat? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just, I mean, we'll call it moister white meat. That's what we'll do. Yeah. <laughs> we, we'll workshop special. the terms that we use for this, but yeah, basically. What is it? As far um, as terms go, super meat is pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Halavi also says that meat from animals that are endangered could be cultured without harming them. So you could finally eat that dolphin you always oh, wow. wanted to try <laughs> or something. I don't know. Uh, um, see, I think that's going to backfire because all of those weird meats generally don't actually taste good. It's just people going like, ooh, I'm eating dolphin. And if it becomes really common, people are like, no, this is actually gross. Why are we doing this? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that's the ideal scenario. Maybe yeah. that's just what we need to save the animals. We could see exotic options. Like if you do want to give cannibal a try. Maybe you have a willing donor who says, hey, take my cells. This could be like a new way of really consummating a marriage. Oh my God. <laughs> that took a really dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we joke now, but I think that these conversations are actually going to become a yeah. real thing. Yeah. So there's no regulation around cultured meat in Israel, meaning that super meat can't actually charge customers. But it oh. does intend to invite members of the public to try its dishes just to create a buzz. And a waiver agreeing to voluntarily assume any and all risks must also be signed. Yeah, yeah. You're participating in a science experiment. <laughs> exactly. Kind of smart of them to outsource their R&D and focus group testing as a way to also market the business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
The industry was given a significant boost this week when Singapore became the first state to approve that sale of cultured meat for a Chicken Bites product made by Eat Just, as Angie covered. Yep. So, you know, we're starting to see inroads being made all over the place. Uh, Well, two places, but soon all over. (laughs) And (laughs) Savier says that the production cost of his burger is $35, which seems high, but it's actually dramatically less than it was a few years ago. Hmm. In 2013, a Dutch pharmacologist, Mark Post, made history by eating the first lab-grown beef burger, which cost Two hundred twenty-five thousand mm-hmm. pounds. Yeah. Okay. Which, yeah. So we've made really big strides, but perhaps the biggest hurdle is just the yuck factor. Like for many people, the idea of lab-grown flesh remains unenticing or even blasphemous. <laughs> Severe says we're not interfering; we're just doing it in a different way. Ice made in a freezer is not interfering with God; it's using technology to do it more efficiently. Which I think is a little bit reductionist of what exactly right, is going, going into on. this. <laughs> But I mean, if you serve it on a brioche bun with a spicy chili mayo and a side of fries and it looks the same, you could fool me. Yeah. And then I'd be like, well, I guess I already broke that seal. So let's just. (laughs) So it's test tube meat from now on. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that uh, this is the kind of thing where if it has negative side effects, it's really after like 30 or 40 years. So by that point, it'll just be too late. So I'm just not going to worry about it. Yeah, it doesn't matter for us. Good point. (laughs) (laughs) With that, next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, believe it or not, it is December. I know that feels very weird to Uh... say, but it's true. Which means the holidays are coming up, and The Uh. Hustle has a really interesting article on the economics of Christmas trees. So do you guys put up a Christmas tree? Do you do a real one, a fake one? What do you do? Yeah, I do a fake one. It varies. Uh, (laughs) It just kind of depends on our mood, I guess. I don't know. Christmas is weird in my family. Yeah. I get the feeling that we're about to hear about which is going to be a better investment and more economically feasible and possibly more ecologically feasible. The real versus fake. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely part of it. They focus mostly on the real trees and uh, Christmas tree farms sell 25 to 30 million real trees per year. There are about 15,000 tree farms in the U.S., ranging everywhere from 9,000 acres all the way down to just two acres. There's some guy out there who's growing like six trees, I guess. And (laughs) the market is very stratified. So of those 15,000 farms, 75% of all business is done by the top 434 farms. Mm -hmm. At any given time, there are around 350 million Christmas trees growing specifically for that purpose, partly because they're a long-term investment. A tree takes about eight to 10 years to reach six feet tall, which is kind of the minimum as far as consumers are concerned. Mm -hmm. Two thirds of the trees come from just four states, Oregon, North Carolina, Michigan and Pennsylvania. In Oregon, trees, not all trees, but just Christmas farm trees outnumber people 12 to one. So, I mean, it's a big industry where it's an industry. There are not any growing in Texas, I'm pretty sure. But (laughs) but where they grow them, they grow a lot of them. So a Christmas tree begins its life as a seedling, which is typically purchased from a timber farm for between 50 cents and a dollar. It spends the first two years of its life in a series of expanding planters before finally growing large enough to be given a plot of land out in the field. Most Christmas tree farmers try to fit about 1,200 trees per acre. So these are obviously exactly what you'd imagine. They're very dense. They're in neat little rows. But Mm -hmm. you can't just set it and forget it. Throughout its 10 years, this tree must be tended, fertilized, and trimmed in order to grow into a perfect lush Christmas tree, at which point the $75 price tag starts looking a little more reasonable, you know, when you think about the amount of labor that goes into growing this thing. 
And that is especially true from the farmer's perspective, because the reality is most profits are taken by the retailers. Wholesale trees go for around $35 each. So farmers make an average profit of only about $8 to $10 per tree. The way they remain profitable is they make up for it in volume. So a retailer like Home Depot might order 250,000 trees for a single season. So for the big farms, you're still looking at an annual profit of over $2 million. Wow. And the big farms, they have their process down tight. So the uh, author of this article went and kind of visited and watched what was happening right now as they harvest them. At, for example, holiday tree farms, during the harvest season, owner Mark Arkills uses seven helicopters running continuously from sunrise to sunset, loading about a thousand cut trees per hour into tractor trailers. Holy cow. For a total of a million harvested trees in just 30 days. So it's oh my gosh. it's a busy month. Nonetheless, as you noted, their industry is in peril from the inexorable rise of their nemesis, the artificial Christmas tree. <laughs> Today, yeah. of the 96 million Christmas trees in American homes, about 81% are fake. Oh, a wow. much higher wow. number than I was thinking, yeah. The numbers can be a little misleading because, of course, people reuse their fake Christmas trees. And mm-hmm. some of the customers who buy fake trees are people who would never have dealt with the hassle of a real tree if it was their only choice. So they're not necessarily taking buyers away from the real Christmas tree farms. Mm. But mm. from an annual sales perspective, both real trees and fake trees sell around 25 million new units each year. So that represents a huge spike in sales for the fake trees, while sales of real trees have been stagnant for about the last two decades. The economic supply chain for fake trees is, of course, entirely different. While a real tree takes eight to ten years to grow, a fake one can be made in a factory in less than five minutes. Wow. And about 85% of all fake trees come from a single province in China called Yiwu, which is often nicknamed Santa's real workshop. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The province of Yiwu contains over 600 Christmas tree factories, where workers twine the green polyvinyl chloride onto metal poles in 12-hour shifts for the equivalent of about $600 per month. Yeah, it's not great. And at full steam, a factory in Yiwu can churn out 1,500 trees every two days. And they can do it year-round. They don't have to wait for a harvest season. So, Boy, you know, this really kind of makes me think about, like, the movie Elf. But like the Chinese factory version of it. Right, right. The really depressing version of Elf. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That being said, tree farms may have found their Christmas miracle. In recent years, the you-cut movement has been growing in popularity, where traveling to the farm and cutting down your own tree becomes sort of part of the experience. Oh, yeah. Last year, a full third of real tree sales were you-cut-it-yourself. And that means the farm gets to keep all the profits because they're still charging the same price. Meaning instead of $10 per tree, they make about $50 per tree that way. So as long as they can keep convincing people that it's fun to do manual labor, they can (laughs) easily stay in business. Well, look, if we can grow chicken tissue in any kind of format, who's to say we don't have a chicken meat Christmas tree happening in 30 years? That's very true. I'm sorry. I hope any listener is not actually eating right now. I'm just... Like, is the tree breaded? I'm just imagining it trembling right now. Like, <laughs> I know uh... they make edible glitter. And so if you could bread it with glitter and then like instead of tinsel, you're using condiments. Look, the sky's the limit, guys. We yeah, are it's just true. It's a nascent to- industry. Let's go. Tomato ornaments. Yeah. When you take a bite yeah. out of it, it gives a little squawk. Like, <laughs> 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 Or it plays a Christmas song. Yeah. <laughs> We can, it's genetics. We can make it do anything we want, you guys. (laughs) 
Next link. Next, Next link. link. Next link. Oh, I don't even know how to follow that one up. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll try it with this science <laughs> alert article. Scientists have confirmed an entirely new species of a gelatinous blob from the deep, dark sea. Ooh. Hey, and what makes this especially unique is that the, for the first time, scientists with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration have formally identified a new species of undersea creature based solely on high-definition video footage captured at the bottom of the ocean. So usually when we're discovering new species, we have to, you know, remove them from their natural habitat, get genetic samples and things like that, which is, you know, to be correct, the right way of identifying a new species. But the problem is, especially with these kind of gelatinous creatures, is they don't really last that long when you take them away from that high pressure, deep sea environment. Yeah, they explode, don't they? Like, they can they explode, have... they can dissolve. It's just, you know, you're not really getting a real freshy type of sample. Yeah, I always think about like trying to pull these creatures up from the deep it's a little bit like aliens yanking us off the planet out into the vacuum of space and yeah. then being like what's wrong with it why is it <laughs> screaming and bulging outwards so weirdly it's also been kind of contested to just use video footage and say is this truly a new species but for this particular one, it's called Duobrachium sparksae, and it's a strange gelatinous species of tenophore. It was encountered by the remotely operated vehicle Deep Discoverer during a dive off the coast of Puerto Rico. The footage is included in the article. I highly recommend it. The encounter actually took place in 2015, but as the article notes, when you're laying claim to discovering a wholly new species based solely on video evidence with no physical specimens to make your mm -hmm. case, they had to do their due diligence. So that's mm -hmm. why they're announcing it now. They were capable of picking up subtle details on the D. Sparksay's body that were less than a millimeter long. Wow. Subsequent analysis of the organism that's now detailed in a new paper does indicate it's easily distinguishable from all other known tenophore species. It's a pretty cute creature, too. So it's not like some of the horrific deep sea horrors you may have seen on the internet, mm -hmm. but it's got kind of a bulbous balloon-like body. It's got two prominent tentacle arms. When it looks upright, it kind of looks like a tooth with really long nerve endings. And it's got some bioluminescence as well. It's really beautiful. Oh. Some other tenophores you may have heard about, comb jellies, named after the combs of fine cilia. They've also been referred to as sea gooseberries, sea mm -hmm. walnuts, and Venus's girdles, which I found particularly right. charming. <laughs> they kind of look like jellyfish, but they're not closely related because tenophores are actually carnivorous. They subsist on small arthropods and various kinds of larvae. Hmm, I want to see one of those things take out a little lobster. That would be fun. <laughs> well, we'll get high dev video of it if and when we can get access to that sort of thing. So I felt very curious and I looked up what a comb jelly looks like and found a blood belly comb jelly, which I highly recommend you Google because these Ooh. things look strange. They <laughs> are basically comb jellies, but entirely red and <laughs> almost look kind of like strange heart slash butt things. Um, so, and they're translucent. And they have stripes that glow. So yeah, I can no. see why this might not survive too long uh, while and, being And hey, it's more processed. humane to just, you know, observe them in their natural habitat. We have the technology. The time is now. Let's just leave these creatures be unless, you know, of course, we discover later on that they're responsible for some horrific environmental impact and their growth numbers are unchecked. And then we actually have to bring them up and find a way to culture their cells and eat them in a sandwich. Right. As you say, if we find out they taste good, that's it. It's open That's season. it. Like, That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, look out for that blood belly comb jelly Christmas tree in 2030. <laughs> that would be an excellent star topper for the chicken tree, I think. <laughs> Especially for sure. those. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So this article is a far divergence from all of this stuff. This one comes from Wired.com, and it's titled, The Internet's Most Notorious Botnet Has an Alarming New Trick. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So in just the last two months, the cybercriminal-controlled botnet known as TrickBot has become, by some measures, public enemy number one for the cybersecurity community. It survived several takedown attempts by Microsoft, a supergroup of security firms, and even U.S. Cyber Command. And now, it seems that the hackers behind TrickBot are trying a new technique to infect the deepest recesses of infected machines, reaching even beyond their operating systems and into their firmware. Security firms Advintel and Eclipsium revealed that they've spotted a new component of the Trojan that TrickBot hackers use to infect machines. And Trojans are typically, you know, they appear like some other file, and just like the old story of the Trojan horse, Mm. they insert themselves when you run it and then take over your computer or just kind of exist there. So the previously undiscovered module checks victim computers for vulnerabilities that would let hackers plant a backdoor into a deep-seated code known as the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, or UFI, which is responsible for loading a device's operating system when it boots up. So it actually lives outside of the hard drive on the motherboard. So Mm. that means that planting malicious code there can allow TrickBot to evade most antivirus Ah. detection. It could also be used to brick target computers, corrupting their firmware to the degree that the motherboard would need to be replaced. So the TrickBot operator's use of that technique, which the researchers are calling TrickBoot, makes the hacker group just one of a handful and the first one that is not state-sponsored. To Uh have experimented in the wild with UFI-targeted malware, says Vitaly Kremez, who's a cybersecurity researcher for Advintel and the company's CEO. Kremez says that the group is looking for novel ways to get very advanced persistence on systems to survive any software updates and get inside the core of the firmware. And they haven't actually seen the code that would compromise it, but they believe that they'd likely be downloading this firmware hacking payload only to certain vulnerable computers that are really high-value targets of interest, so they're handpicking. Right, they're not going after your laptop, they're going after the electrical grid or the, you know, the Pentagon's computers. Exactly, exactly. Or, like, really huge, uh, wealthy companies that they can run ransomware attacks against. So the hackers behind TrickBot, who are generally believed to be Russia-based, have gained a reputation as some of the most dangerous cybercriminal hackers on the internet. And their botnet, which at peak included more than a million enslaved machines, has been used to plant ransomware like Ryuk and Conti inside the networks of countless victims, including hospitals and medical research facilities. Wow. And it was considered menacing enough that two distinct operations attempted to disrupt it in October. One was carried out by a group of companies including Microsoft, ESET, Symantec, and Lumen Technologies, even using court orders to cut TrickBot's connections to the U.S.-based command and control servers. And the other was in operation by U.S. Cyber Command, which essentially hacked the botnet back, sending new configuration files to its compromised computers designed to cut them off from the TrickBot operators. So you're basically uploading a new instruction set saying, you know, this is no longer who you call back home to. Mm. So Advintel's Kremez came upon this new firmware-focused feature of TrickBot, whose modular design lets it download new components and update on the fly to victim computers, just like any other piece of software you have, in a sample of the malware in late October after the two attempted takedown operations. 
Kumez shared the module with Eclipsium, which specializes in firmware and microarchitecture security, and their analysts determined that the new component doesn't actually alter a victim's PC firmware itself, but instead checks for a common vulnerability in Intel UFIs. And PC manufacturers who implement the Intel's UFI firmware often don't set certain bits in that code, which mm. are designed to prevent it from being tampered with. So it's like a very specific type of firmware by a very specific processor. Mm. But unfortunately, Intel is a very, very popular. Sure, it's, it's almost processor. ubiquitous. So mm. yeah. exactly. Yeah, so Eclipsium estimates that the configuration problem persists in tens of millions or even possibly hundreds of millions of PCs. They say it would literally just be a one byte or one line change in order to erase the flash or write to the flash instead of just reading the flash. And the flash is generally the term used for the UFI firmware. Hmm. So... This type of firmware hacking has appeared in the wild before, mostly used by state-sponsored hackers from the CIA to Russia's Fancy Bear team to a likely Chinese group that repurposed a firmware spy tool created by the hacker-for-hire firm Hacking Team. But hmm. Eclipsium and Adventil both argue that the appearance of Trick Boot means that firmware hacking is moving from targeted state-sponsored attacks to far less discriminate, profit-focused criminal hacking. Boy. And that means a vast new set of potential victims. Ugh. And yeah. So it's really intense because as your average consumer user, you may not ever do a firmware update. Oh, sure. It wouldn't even occur to most people. Yeah, exactly. Like you could ask most people what a UFI is and they will have no idea. They won't even know it exists on their computer. It's designed to stay out of the way so that you don't have to think about it. Well, and it's designed and, to make it not very easy to mess with because people will screw it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if you work in an enterprise company or any company that has valuable stuff on your computers, this is something to look out for. Mm. Uh, thankfully, your average consumer, like your home computer, probably not a high value target, not something you have to worry about. But if things are still weird after a entire OS reformat, I don't know, maybe you got trick booted. <laughs> um, hard to say. It's it's that that's what is so freaky about this type of attack. Yeah. Like there aren't many ubiquitous tools for debugging or figuring out if something has changed because it's so so low level. Huh. Well, now I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were all so excited about like cultured meat saving us. And now the hackers are going to come after us. And if they yeah, hack the vats, I mean, just think about what they could do. It's a it's a terrifying <laughs> thing. Okay, yeah, that's funny yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, combining these two ideas, it's it's not unrealistic to think of, you know, targeted bio mod things. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a headline that's just like, instead of a recall, it's like, if you ate this kind of meat from this period of time, it was actually human and we're sorry. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, they've been making the viral rounds and we haven't talked about them yet, but we're going to now. The mysterious monoliths appearing ah, across yes. the world. Yes. So this is from Constance Grady at Vox.com. There's a lot more background. I had kind of, to be honest, tuned it out. Like I saw the initial mm -hmm. hubbub and then I was like, okay, I don't mm -hmm. care. I don't have the I was waiting for the like, what is actually like, who is responsible? Because surely someone was going to fess up. Yeah. So there, there are some answers for sure in this. So in case you've been living under a rock or embedded in one, as the case may be, the monoliths hmm. are vertical triangular slabs of metal, each 10 to 12 feet tall, that have mysteriously appeared in four places so far around the world. The first one appeared on November 18th in a remote desert canyon in Utah's Red Rock country. 
It was discovered by some workers with the Utah Department of Public Safety. And as with everything these days, their first instinct was to take out their phones and shoot a video of themselves climbing down to inspect it, right? So that's kind of the part that everybody saw. But it goes well beyond that. So among the wild theories about its origins were two important facts. One, it wasn't just balanced. It was deeply embedded in the rock surface. So whoever put it there would have needed heavy machinery to do it. And two, satellite images from Google Earth proved that it had been sitting out there for at least four years. What? Since sometime between August 2015 and October 2016. Yeah, it's uh, just been there. We just haven't found it. Uh-huh. Obviously, a lot of people suspected aliens. Some thought it was an art installation. And one of the more believable explanations that has gained traction is that it's a leftover set piece from the HBO series Westworld, which was known to be filming out in that area back in late 2015. But while everybody was busy speculating about what it might be, nine days later, it disappeared. And the mystery of its disappearance was actually solved pretty quickly because the folks who did it, again, posted a video. It was taken down by a pair of men named Andy Lewis, whose official profession is listed in the article as base jumper. And uh, a, quote, adventure guide named Sylvan Christensen. And they explained that they took it down for environmental reasons because too many tourists have started to flock to the area. Their official statement on Instagram read, The dismantling of the Utah monolith is tragic, and if you think we're proud, we're not. We're disappointed. We want to make it clear that we support art and artists, but the ethical failures of the artist for the 24-inch equilateral gouge in the sandstone was not even close to the damage caused by the internet sensationalism. People arrived by car, by bus, by van, helicopter, planes, trains, motorcycles, and e-bikes, and there isn't even a parking lot. There aren't bathrooms. And yes, pooping in the desert is a misdemeanor. (laughs) 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 they, uh, They obviously felt pretty strongly about it, but then things got weird. So on the same day that Lewis and Christensen removed the Utah monolith, a new one spontaneously appeared outside the city of Piatra Nimt in Romania. And it was pretty clearly made by a different person, as this one had sort of a swirled pattern ground into the metal surface and a welding seam at the bottom. Mayor Andre Carabalea quipped, My guess is that some cheeky and terrible alien teenagers left home with their parents' UFO and started planting metal monoliths around the world, I am honored that they chose our city. Uh, Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike the Utah Wildlife Department, Carabellea said he hoped the monolith would attract tourists, but nonetheless, it too disappeared four days later on December 2nd. And again, on the same day, a new one appeared in California, this time at the top of Pine Mountain in Atascadero. This one wasn't embedded into the ground at all, and it only lasted a day because on December 3rd, a group of young men filmed themselves knocking it over and destroying it. Uh. Unfortunately, their motives were pretty gross. They chanted America first as they rocked it back and forth and declared, quote, Christ is king in this country. We don't want illegal aliens from Mexico or outer space. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're horrible people. And uh, as as they dragged it down the mountain, one said their actions were, quote, fine because it was funny. Wow. (laughs) The folks who installed the California monolith clearly disagreed because the next day a new one stood in its place. And their identity is not a mystery. It was a group of four local metal workers named Travis Kenny, Randall Kenny, Wade McKenzie, and Jared Riddle. And they acknowledged that they didn't know anything about the first two monoliths. They were just inspired by the potential reference to Stanley Kubrick's movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which had three monoliths, so they wanted to build a third one. Hmm. And then, on December 7th, a fourth monolith appeared in Albuquerque, New Mexico, this time in the parking lot of an REI. So they're clearly, like, going <laughs> downward <laughs> in, in scope and impressiveness. 
mm-hmm. on the same day, it was again torn down again on video by a group of people yelling and beating it with sledgehammers. Wow. So cultured. Yeah. It brings <laughs> I mean, out the worst in people. <laughs> this really is like the 2001 A Space Odyssey scene yeah. where it's just a bunch of primitive We're the monkeys. monkeys. We're yeah, the monkeys. Except instead of beating each other up, they're beating up the monolith yeah. because I don't know. But it, this is interesting because it seems like a new trend has started called mm-hmm. monolithing. Right. Uh, right. Which, <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> I hope we see a TikTok new monolith. Sensation. Yeah, yeah. I hope we see a new monolith pop up like random places in the world like every other week. I think that would be very fun. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no one knows who installed the monolith in Albuquerque, but it does seem clear that the final three monoliths are all copycats of the first. Mm-hmm. And people still don't know who did that one. One possibility, like I said, is a set piece from Westworld. And if that's the case, they're unlikely to admit it because they weren't supposed to leave anything out there. So they're not going to just come forward and claim it. Another possibility is the artist John McCracken, who was known for building what he called silver planks that are somewhat similar to the monolith. And he once said, I was trying to do the kind of work that would have been brought here by a UFO. McCracken Mm. died in 2011, but people have theorized that he's the kind of guy who would leave instructions for one of his work to be installed after his death. But the gallery owner in charge of his estate says he doesn't think it's a genuine McCracken. He says, when you look closely at the photos of the Utah monolith, you will see rivets and screws that are not consistent with how John wanted his work to be constructed. Mm. He was a perfectionist. (laughs) Another artist, a performance artist named Zardulu, has implied that it might be hers, saying, I think they'll find that the Utah one was installed at the height of my productivity in late 2015. Well, that's about an admission. Kind of. But then she says she, well, so she has also taken credit for staging the Pizza Rat video and a supposedly (laughs) spontaneous photo of a raccoon riding on the back of an alligator in Florida, (laughs) which I I sort of vaguely remember. So this is clearly her thing, is not just Mm. like weird art, but weird art that goes viral, Mm -hmm. right? But when asked directly if she was taking credit for the monoliths, she said no. And the author notes that since her whole thing is creating false stories that go viral, any suggestion that she's responsible could itself be the false story that she's leaning into and should be taken (sighs) to the heaping pile of salt. So, (laughs) you know, whether or not it's art, uh, they have a a comment here from Pedro Lash, an art professor at Duke University. He says, the phenomenon of public interest in the object is more important to me than whether we call it art or not. He says the design and characteristics of the monoliths aren't new, but the way they have traveled across social media suggests that they speak to this moment. Or, as the article notes, maybe it was aliens. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta always end on that note, honestly. Yeah, I'm always of the opinion that at least one weird thing was aliens and the rest was just people being silly. Right. Uh, (laughs) I'm not gonna say that's what I think happened here, but, you know, maybe. It could be, you know. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today. How the FBI destroyed the careers of 41 women in TV and radio. Alaska Islands may be part of a single massive volcano. And Isaac Newton's attempt to unlock the secret code of the pyramids. So all that and more and probably some more alien references can be found on daminteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.